It kind of bothers me when I hear a talking head on true crime TV or a podcast casually call someone a psychopath or use the word psychopath or sociopath interchangeably. And so, while reviewing the BTK case, I'm going down the rabbit hole of what a psychopath actually is and, more importantly, what a psychopath is not. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. Welcome to Crossing the Line. I'm here with my executive producer extraordinaire, Christina Everett. Hi, Phelps. How are you doing? You know, I think this week is a good episode that really describes who we are, what this show is in many ways, because, you know, we don't want to just rehash cases. I want to go deeper, more immersive in the subjects. And some of these subjects might be familiar to listeners. I want to begin this week with someone that needs very little introduction, if you're a fan of true crime. This particular location, did you know these people? No, that was part of my, uh, what you call fantasy. These people were selected. That's the detached, smug inflection of what I know to be a bona fide psychopath, Dennis Rader, better known as BTK. And let me just say this right up front. I highly disagree with the fact that he has not been diagnosed a psychopath, as does Rader himself. He ticks just about every box on the Cleckley hair checklist, which we're going to talk about later on in this episode. First, though, let's go through the BTK case. His murder started in 1974. Dennis Rader, a rather unassuming husband, father next door, albeit bitter, angry, and certainly quirky dude, stalked and brutally murdered a family of four in Wichita, Kansas. Many listening will be familiar with Rader's nickname, BTK. And the nickname is rooted in what he did to his victims. Bind, torture, kill. So soon after murdering that family of four in 1974, Rader murdered a young woman, then another, and another, until he amassed 10 victims. He had 10 victims, and I just don't want to gloss over that and get to the interview. I really want to give victims their space here. So Everett, if you could help me out with this and and maybe just read their names, their ages. Sure. Their names are Joseph Otero, age 38, Julie Otero, age 33, Joseph Otero Jr., age 9, Josephine Otero, age 11, Catherine Bright, age unknown, Shirley Vianne Relford, age 26, Nancy Fox, age unknown, Maureen Hedge, age 53, Vicki Weggerly, age unknown, and Dolores E. Davis, age 62. As you read the names, it occurred to me how important it is to do that because I think we can get lost in the fact that we're telling these stories about murder and the dramatic killers and, you know, the psychology, but these are real people who have died, who were murdered at the root of all of this, right? Right. And I mean, these are not names that I was familiar with because we're all familiar with BTK. The spotlight is on him and- Unfortunately, it's not on the victims. And so it's nice to be able to recognize that they were people that existed. That's the point. I I guess you said it better than what I was thinking was 
you ask somebody in, in true crime, hey, you have you heard of BTK? Yeah. But ask that same person, have you heard of Dolores Davis? I have no idea who that is. Right. Well, that's one of his victims. And by the way, it's a nickname that he gave himself, wasn't it? Well, it's what a psychopath would do, I think. I feel like a lot of times media gives these serial killers names, but it's pretty narcissistic, which, yes, I know, is goes in line with psychopaths to give yourself this own name. It's like giving yourself a nickname in high school or something to sound cooler. I think when I look back at this case, you know, BTK was coming in at a time when Helter Skelter, uh, Manson, all that stuff was ending. It was maybe five, six years later. So here was a guy who wanted to be recognized for what he was doing. Right. Wanted the fame. Right. For binding, torturing, and killing people. Kids, even. Incidentally, in early adolescence, Raider read about and became obsessed with and imagined becoming a serial killer. Imagine that. Like, imagine being a kid and asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> like, Serial killer is not the top of the list there. Right. Other kids are playing cops and robbers, hide and seek. Raiders off dreaming of murdering people. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a cowboy. Really? Yep. I wanted to be a roller skating waitress. <laughs> hey, you still can. I, you still can. There's still I, I a can't chance. be a cowboy at this point. I just have to learn how to roller skate. <laughs> I was a fan of Wild Wild West with, um, what's his name? Um, Robert Conrad. I was going to say, the I, Will Smith remake? <laughs> no, not the fucking Will Smith remake. Robert Conrad, the, the television show. I actually had a signed picture as like a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. I remember vividly of Robert Conrad as James West. He signed it for me and I had it on my wall. That's so cool. I'm afraid to know what Raider had up on his wall. I, as a kid, he's aroused by somebody slaughtering chickens. That arouses him. He fantasizes as a kid about tying women down onto train tracks, and he masturbated to his father's book, his father's book on the Lonely Hearts Killer. And this brings me to one of my points here. With Raider, what we have is a born psychopath, no doubt about it, who then embraces his lack of empathy, narcissism, smugness, the charming qualities, his psychopathology, among other things, it's brewing inside of him. And he allows it to manifest. He knows what's going on. He's definitely not someone who is not aware of who who he is, what's going on. In he's his, not in denial. It, absolutely. No, he's, he's, he's embracing it all. BTK is so well known and widely written about, it's, it's not hard to find factual information about his crimes online. A Google search will help you uh, if you want to learn more about what he did. I'm not going to sit here and go through the, the details of what he did to these people. The purpose of this episode is his psychological makeup. That is important to me, to understand this mind that did this. And that begins, I think, with my subtopic, distinguishing differences between what is a psychopath and what is not a psychopath. So let's clear up some of these differences and talk about them because I've done extensive research huh, to my own detriment, to my own mental health on both. Yeah. I would love to know, like, can you explain what makes a psychopath? Well, I think our guest, Catherine Ramsland, is going to explain a lot of that. But what I can say about it is clear in my research, a psychopath has zero empathy. You know, there's no conscience. There's no capacity for love or remorse. 
The psychopath can be that chameleon and, and adhere to social conventions when a situation calls for it. And the situation is particularly a means to his or her usually violent end. And I might say, recently I, I, I watched that hearing with Scott Peterson for his resentencing, and that's exactly what you see. You see a guy who has no capacity for love, no remorse, and he's defiant at this point. We hear the terms psychopath and sociopath thrown together a lot, and they just shouldn't be. The sociopath has, and it's very limited and at a very low level, at least the capacity to feel empathy or remorse. Sociopaths are more prone to giving themselves away sometimes, right? How so? We've all seen it, uh, maybe in our lives, maybe at a party, maybe at work, maybe, I don't know, uh, at the Starbucks. Uh, you know, they can they pop off. They become angry in an instant like that. And they react to something violently. You know, they throw a glass, they throw a beer bottle, they punch somebody. They have a short fuse? At times. Okay. Not all the time. Uh, someone might just have anger issues and have a short fuse. You confront somebody, and in, instead of them saying, look, I, I, I'm so sorry, I apologize, you know, I, that really makes me feel bad that I offended you or whatever. Mm -hmm. That would be a healthy way to re respond. Right. You know, the person just is defiant and they just pop off, they snap. So think about the psychopath as one who in the same situation mm -hmm. could smile, albeit smugly, and then lie to your face in a believable way while turning around and in his or her head, planning to make you pay for confronting them. Yeah, and that's when you would think in your head, that's a psycho path. <laughs> that's, that's the difference, right? That's the difference. Yeah. If you were to walk into like a party, how long do you would you say it would take you to be able to decipher psychopath, sociopath, or just someone off the rocker? I can pick off the sociopath almost within five minutes of being at a party in the room, hands down. That's a party trick. I will put money on that. <laughs> the psychopath is a little bit more elusive because the pathology is more hidden. They're, they're, they're very stealthy about how they do things, which makes them more dangerous. That's why, you know, we see the Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, Bernie Madoff's. We see them charming people to the max. We see them gathering people together and getting their money and making them feel good and laughing and joking with them. And, all, you know, that's that takes a lot of work. And they're considered psychopaths to some degree, right? Don't they usually say that a lot of CEOs are a type of psychopath? It doesn't necessarily mean murder, but... Yeah, I mean, a, a small, small percentage of psychopaths, a lot of them are sociopaths. Okay. I mean, if you can lay off a staff of a thousand and then go play golf and then go on your yacht, I mean, that instead of, you know, going home and crying in the corner with right. a bottle of scotch, I mean, <laughs> it kind of makes you a sociopath, mm -hmm. you know, in many ways. Well, what about BTK then? Was it obvious what he was? No. And that's what made him a dangerous guy. I mean, in many ways, he was this ordinary guy those around him were shocked to find out was a violent monster with 10 victims in his wake. Church council president, family man, raising kids, showing up for work every day, cutting his lawn on Saturdays. Dare we even say somebody, quote, unquote, acting somewhat normal. 
So he sounded like he was that neighbor next door, you know, that you would hear people on a newscast later on being like, we never expected it. He was such a nice guy. He. But that's the comment everybody says after the guy next door, they find two bodies in his basement rotting. Yeah, he was the great guy. And for all intents and purposes, BTK was that guy, right? With the Golden State Killer, you know, when we started to hear from the neighbors, they were clear. This guy, he was an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. So with, mm-hmm. with, with BTK... What's different about him is he wasn't an asshole to the guy next door. He might have been an asshole at work. He might have been an asshole to certain people, but his general day-to-day life, he wasn't. In contrast, when you hear these stories about local murders happening and they interview the neighbors, there are times where like a neighbor or a classmate will be like, yeah, that's not a surprise. He was a weird guy. Yeah. That could be mental illness too, though, right? Correct. And there is the fine line there. We hear people described as crazy. And that gets tossed around so much. There's a clear distinction between mental illness and psychopathy and a psychopath, a sociopath, et cetera. There's, a, there, there's distinctions there. And I, ha- and I feel very strongly about that. We talk about Adam Lanza and Newtown, Sandy Hook. We're talking about a kid who was mentally ill who killed kids in school. And I'm not defending him at all. I'm just saying he was mentally ill hands down. He wasn't a psychopath. He was mentally ill. Uh, when we talk about BTK, we're talking about a psychopath. Mm-hmm. This guy knew exactly what he was doing. This guy was organized. He thought about it. He fantasized about it. He, he pictured his victims in his mind and he went out and he found them. This is what they do. This is the mask of sanity. As my former colleague, mentor, John Kelly, a forensic psychologist used to tell me, the guy who waves at you and cooks you a hamburger on Saturday and then goes and binds and tortures and kills someone Saturday night, right? He's wearing the mask of sanity at the barbecue. And you've talked to the happy face killer for many years, and it sounds like that's similar to what he's told you about how he's looked at his murders before too, right? I really learned a lot about the mask of sanity talking to happy face for all those years and sitting in front of him in Oregon State Prison and talking to him on the phone because I catch myself sometimes. You know, he'd be talking about some movie he saw or something and I'd be listening to him. And he's charming you. Right, and I'd be listening to actually what he's saying about that movie. And I'd I'd take a step back afterwards and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything he's doing is a calculation. He's getting into my head. He's chipping away at my brain. He's playing you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, let's listen to Happy Face himself from an interview I conducted with him, Keith Hunter Jesperson, and listen to how casual and matter of fact he describes a horribly brutal murder. I was basically just throwing punches. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to strangle her and kill her. Of course, I tried to strangle her for about I, I held my hands on her as long as I could until my hands turned white, and I let go, and, and she started breathing. Her body started breathing again. I was like, this is, I can't even kill her. I mean, this is not like in the movies where they're 15 seconds later, they're dead kind of thing. Now, I did undo her, her pants, and I wanted to see, you know, the only way I'm going to know for sure that she's dead is if she pees or whatever. So I unbuttoned her, her, her jeans and then strangled her and I was watching for pee to develop before I realized when I, I believe that's when she would be dead. And of course, as I, about four minutes into it, a stream of urine soaked the carpet. So I went into the, the 
garage and got a rope. And I figured if I tied the rope around her neck, that it would secure, uh, you know, make sure that she stays dead. Besides hearing the details, what I think is the most disturbing part about this is how matter-of-fact he is when speaking to you and how nonchalant he is. Like, it just sounds like it is just what he did on a Saturday afternoon rather than this is taking the life of a human being. It just sounds so cold when you realize what he did. A sociopath, if I was to confront the sociopath while we were talking, like Happy Face and I were speaking, if I was to confront him and say, hey, that's brutal, dude, the sociopath might pop off back at me. You don't know nothing like that. Whereas Happy Face just continues to talk. Well, you know what, Phelps? That's the way you see it. That's not the way I see it, you know? And, and Happy Face had this kind of way about always putting the blame on his victims. It was always the victim's fault. And in his mind, he really, really tried to sell this to me. You know, geez, it was fate. I mean, if she didn't get into my truck and she didn't get angry with me and she didn't say that exact word, she'd still be alive. It's not my fault. And two things I want to point out, the word it and the phrase, her body started breathing again. That is the core of what we're discussing. To him, the victim was nothing more in a body, in it. So with that, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. For six years, my old friend and wonderful human being and a phenomenal writer, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, exchanged letters and phone calls with BTK. He opened up to her. They developed a code or codex, BTK called it, to discuss his victims. She wrote really what I consider the definitive account of Raider after interviewing him for six years. It's a book called Confession of a Serial Killer, the Untold Story of Dennis Raider, the BTK Killer. So, Catherine, welcome to Crossing the Line. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I mean, how do you define a psychopath? So the terms are so messy, that it's actually important to kind of know the history of how we came to using the, t- the term and diagnosis psychopath, because it's really, t- you know, 200 years long history that's mixed up with sociopath and antisocial personality disorder and borderline. Right. So I don't have a nutshell way of saying what a psychopath is, but I think if we're going to talk about some of the differences, it would be important to look at where it all began. Some of the earliest descriptions of a person we would think of as a psychopath really come out of Aristotle's day. There was a a concept of the unscrupulous man, the con artist who didn't care if he was caught in a lie, um, you know, very narcissistic, glib, charming, tried to get away with whatever he could and always had his own self-interest to protect no matter who he hurt, he didn't care, no remorse. So essentially, the hallmark of a psychopath is that callous disregard and total lack of remorse, manipulative, deceptive, parasitic, all of that. But it wasn't until the end of the 19th century that they actually used the term psychopath. And the problem with that was that it became a big catch-all term for a lot of different conditions. And by 1930, there was a 
uh, an article published saying why psychopathy or the psychopath is such a messy catch-all term it doesn't really work anymore so let's call them sociopaths so that's where the sociopath came in was 1930 it was adopted in 1952 for the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders it stayed there for i think to the second version and then that was replaced by personality disorder antisocial type and now in in the fifth edition of the diagnostic manual it's antisocial personality disorder but these three things are not the same thing and they're used interchangeably as if they are but they're not at all the same thing i just want to talk one second about that okay. because People on TV, even people on podcasts, they throw around the two terms. And that's what I'm trying to get at here is the difference. There's marked differences. So go ahead. In 1941, a prison psychiatrist, Harvey Cleckley, crystallized what a psychopath is. But that was around the same time they were trying to make sociopath the, the word to use. So they, they got mixed up. But he, he crystallized 16 traits and behaviors of a psychopath. And he influenced a uh, prison psychologist, Robert Hare. And Robert Hare then, with his colleagues in Canada, began to uh, collect enough data to um, create the psychopathy checklist. The 20 points. Well, it was 22 when they first created it. It's now the, it's now the psychopathy checklist revised, which is the PCLR. They revised it to help with recidivism studies. And so psychopathy has a diagnostic instrument, but sociopathy does not. Do you know the other two that were on the list? I did ask him once. One was, um, and I've worked with Robert Hare a bit. One was, why me? <laughs> I'm the victim. Uh, <laughs> that okay, was what okay. it was. I could, I I could see why him, they took it they, off. Yeah. Psychopaths are always, I'm the victim here. And he, he said, yeah, yeah, that was one of the ones that they had taken off, but I don't remember what the other one was. In my books, I always point readers to that checklist because it really is a, a really defined, polished way. It is, but it's not the only diagnostic instrument for psychopathy, but it is the most validated one, and it is one of the best predictors of recidivism, so it has a great deal of practical value for prediction of dangerousness, whereas a sociopath, and now let's just kind of go back to that term because it got eclipsed by antisocial personality disorder, and now it's come back into usage, not for professionals so much, but a lot of people are referring to it, and it overlaps with what we call secondary psychopathy. <laughs> so, so psychopathy gets a little complicated because it's, it's divided, it's traits and behavior. Sure. Antisocial personality disorder is primarily behavior, and there's a lot more people diagnosable with that than there are, than there are for psychopathy. But we have factor one and factor two, so interpersonal and affective on, on one of the factors and social deviance on the other. And so we have the primary psychopath, which is that emotional blunting likelihood of, of uh, brain involvement. So they're born that way. They're really callous, uh, highly manipulative, deceptive, calculating. And the secondary psychopath, which overlaps a lot with what we think of as a sociopath, has a lot more impulsivity, anxiety, neuroses. They, they do develop relationships in ways that the primary psychopath doesn't. 
and they overlap with borderline personality disorder. So you can see Ooh. both terms have been very messy. I mean, when you asked me to do this, I thought, oh my God, that's like an hour long lecture right there. <laughs> well, it's hard for me to believe that BTK Dennis Rader is not a psychopath. I mean, I, that, it, it'd be I've been hard told to he does not qualify. I've been told by experts he doesn't qualify. And what are the qualifications that he does not meet? Okay, so he and I disagree with that. <laughs> so, so just so you know, we disagree, but he's never been formally diagnosed. And there was this group of academics who were, who were going through data about all the famous serial killers and deciding who was a psychopath and who wasn't really a psychopath. And uh, like Bundy is, certainly is a psychopath, but some of the others... Um, they thought just didn't qualify. And for example, one of the criteria on the psychopathy checklist is that you have a record of juvenile deviance or delinquency. Well, Rader was delinquent. He just didn't get caught, but that doesn't count on the checklist in that case. So he, he gets a zero for that, even though he shouldn't be getting a zero. Right. So that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem for academics right. and, and researchers, but it's in the real world of uh, psychopaths. I mean, he's a psychopath. There's, there's no doubt about it. I, I guess that's a discussion for later. Well, when they, when they did the formal competency examination, when he thought he might go to trial, on the back of it, somebody wrote in pencil, psychopath with a question mark. <laughs> so I think they oh, were God. they were moving in that direction should he go to trial, but they never got there. What is it you find most interesting about these people? Because you've written a ton of books focused on this subject. So what is it for you? Okay. Well, just to add a little bit more to the sociopath, psychopath thing, there is something called the Society for the Scientific Study of Psychopathy, the SSSP. And so some of them, including uh, Robert Hare, think about sociopaths as being more people who have allegiances to small groups within society, like organized crime or the pirate's code, but don't have any concern about larger social rules and regulations and laws. So that would be a sociopath versus a psychopath where it's inherently a, a personality disorder. They have certain traits not just behaviors. So, you know, superficial charm, grandiose self-worth, pathological lying. You'll get some of that with sociopaths, but that's really the hallmark of a psychopath is that lack of remorse and shallow affect. What, I, what interests me a lot about psychopaths, at least that I've, I've had some experience with, is how when they discuss crimes that they've committed or harm they've brought to other people. And I should make it very clear, not all psychopaths are criminals and not, and certainly not murderers and certainly not serial killers and not all serial killers are psychopaths either. So I just want to be clear about that. Many psychopaths go about in society, they'll break promises, they'll not repay loans, they'll lie to you, things right. like that, but right. they're not committing crimes. But when they do commit crimes and then they talk about them, they don't have any way to weight those crimes morally. So they can talk about them with this very flat affect, at, like they're talking about their grocery list or, you know, or directions. You know, football. To, yeah, so, I, I like exactly. to say football. Yeah, yeah football. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's very interesting watching them because they, they just really have no sense. And we do know that the brains of 
psychopaths are coming up deficient in moral reasoning, in in impulsivity, and uh, they're very highly focused on reward. So they're really not ever thinking about consequences. I know for one thing, when I was talking to Raider, at one point he was talking about that he loved his son, and and I said, well, you know, you were using his car to make some of your BTK deliveries in your cat and mouse game. Didn't you think if you ever were caught and he found out you did that, that would be really harmful and horrible for him to realize. And all he could think of to say was, well, I didn't expect to get caught. He wasn't ever thinking about his son. And yet he says he loves him. So that's the interesting thing about them is that shallowness of their affect and, and that it's always it always comes back to being about them. It's really an infantilism. I mean, it's like they have arrested development, you know, into childhood. What is it for you that is most interesting as a researcher about them? I wish I could get in their head and, and experience what that could be like to have that kind of flatness and callousness and ability to just plan their activities without any regard for consequences to anybody else. I think that would be very interesting. But see, that separates us from them because it it is not possible for us to do that because it is as Adrian Rain, Dr. Adrian Rain has done the brain scans. It's inherent in these people from birth, right? So they're missing part of that empathy area of the brain. They are. But you know what? I don't think, I think it's not correct to say we can't because get hurt enough by people and you can develop a callousness. And I think as someone who's not a clinical person, as someone who doesn't have a degree in this stuff, now you're talking about a sociopath. Exactly. And some people will say the psychopath is born, the sociopath is made by the environment, but that's primary and secondary psychopathy too. So how do you make that distinction? Sure, sure, sure. Well, your book is great. I just want to thank you for coming on. I could talk to you all day. You're a wealth of information. I wish I, wish I could have made it easier for you, but it, this is these are complex topics. So let's take a quick break and get more into the mind of the psychopath. In a nutshell, true psychopaths develop such a sense of hubris and toxic narcissism that it it takes control of their lives. They begin to believe they are smarter than everyone and anyone, especially law enforcement. The serial killing psychopath makes mistakes near the end of a run. I mean, this is very common and this is how they get caught. These are mistakes they never make in the beginning. And mind you, there are psychopaths out there now killing and they will never be caught because they understand themselves better, right? I just want to point that out. Well, that's reassuring. Why don't we go over how BTK was actually caught? So Raider, several weeks before his arrest, now had a line of communication going with Wichita, Kansas Police Lieutenant Ken Lanware, the cop driving the hunt for BTK. BTK asked if he was able to communicate with them using a floppy disk and if the floppy disk could be traced. And for some of our younger listeners, a floppy disk is. (laughs) Oh, a floppy disk is basically, uh, you know, an external drive. It's the same thing (laughs) as an external drive. BTK told them to answer via an ad in the classified section of the local newspaper 
with a specific answer, quote, Rex, it will be okay, end quote. So this is, this is you know, how his mind works. I mean. <laughs> this is so complicated. This really goes to show what I was talking about earlier, their hubris, the narcissism so deep that BTK thinks he's smarter than the cops at this point, right? Right. So then did the police put out that answer in the ad? Yes, that's exactly what they did. They said, of course, it won't be traced. You know, that's mm-hmm. not what they say in the ad. They said, Rex, it will be okay, meaning it can't be traced. Send the floppy disk, dude. So BTK, he sends a floppy disk to a television station in the area. So that floppy disk was obviously traced back to Dennis Rader vis-a-vis a computer he used inside the church he attended. Of course. They ran DNA on the disk and boom, confirmed it was BTK. So now they got him. Clearly, he just likes to play games. I mean, if he just kept his mouth shut and just kept doing what he was doing, he probably would never have gotten caught. But it's similar to some of the other serial killers who want to play this game with the media and with the police stations by sending codes or whatnot. And Let's go back to Happy Face. He sends a letter to the Oregonian. Right, or the Unabomber. They can't, they can't stop themselves. Some of them, I should say, cannot stop themselves. It's probably that thrill of not getting caught, right? Where you're taunting. It's that taunting of the authorities and getting away with it that gives them maybe like that power. Psychopaths, they do this time and again. They can't resist trying to show how superior they are and show how much smarter they are. It goes back to like a high they get from killing that wanes over time. It's just not enough to kill anymore, right? It's the constant craving which is uncontrollable for them. Before we wrap up the show, I just want to suggest a documentary called Psychopath Redefining Rational. Great documentary. Talks about everything we talked about here. And look, I I, I want to say this too. Everybody has one sociopath in their life right now. So educate yourself and you will be able to pick them out. So that's all for today. We'll see you here next week. Sources for today's episode come from an ABA Journal article by Mark Hansen titled How the Cops Caught BTK and Dr. Catherine Ramson's book, Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.